0: The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported.
1: I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on December 6th, 2020, and we're joined today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hello, Adam.
0: Hi, Dave. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. How are you? How are you doing? How are you keeping up at the beginning of December? Are, is it beginning to feel a lot like Christmas at the uh, the Rosenhart uh, household?
0: We've trimmed the tree, uh, but the weather is not really making it feel very Christmassy, and that's I'm okay with that. I'm okay well, with
1: I'm, that. It, it. It's uh, it, it, it's December in Edmonton, so I'm sure the weather will cure that. Uh, yeah, in fa- fairly uh, fairly good time for sure. We are thrilled today to welcome today's guest to the podcast, Melanie Thomas is a political scientist at the University of Calgary. Welcome to the podcast, Melanie.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Excellent. So we you're teaching political science at the University of Calgary. Yes. What, what has it been like to teach political science or to teach university courses in this year of the pandemic since I imagine since March things have kind of gone a bit side I mean gone a bit sideways for everybody But what has it been like to kind of be in the in the center center of that at, at a major university in alberta?
2: Yeah, it's definitely been an experience because uh, I know I am quite Common amongst my colleagues and not having any experience with online instruction <laughs> like at all uh, so and it, this is the part where being like my teaching assignments also, I think, like add an extra element to it. So in the winter, I was teaching a class on elections and electoral behavior, uh, which made like the time interesting in addition to the pivot with like the American campaign going on and various sorts of things. And I've been teaching statistics, <laughs> social statistics this, this fall. So I, I'm very fortunate because my partner is very good at video production. So he's usually doing like extreme sports videos, self-supported kind of stuff. And so uh, at least um, he like he does the video. So the videos are good. And my students don't complain so much about the videos, which is nice, but it's because he'll do uh, like drop-in extras that I honestly don't even know all the stuff that he's doing, but it keeps their attention. So it's like one of the attention grabbers every 10 minutes or so, which the research shows you really do need. In these things I've got other friends where they're like, like, if it wasn't for that, it would be narrated PowerPoint slides so, and it would, so it so would what, be so what, bad. So what
1: what 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 are one of these breaks? Can you give us an example? Like, is it like a Michael Bay explosion or like
2: no, there's some really good uh so I'm a big Black Adder fan. I really do okay. like Black Adder. And so it was one of these ones where Like if you're going to be setting up a particular like way of doing statistical analysis, like when you can eliminate categories of people that you don't care about and when you cannot. Right. And so um, an example is like for if you just have a variable that's categories like who did you vote for and you don't care about the people's party because they're. I'm going to be a bit salty because they're racist and no one voted for them. You can eliminate them. So I was like, you can, sometimes you can kick out categories and sometimes you can't. And so we took the scene from blackadder in the second series where Blackadder kicks a cat. <laughs> like, <laughs> super- <laughs> that? I should say, I have a cat. I am like, we love our cats. This is not like an anti-cat thing, but it was more like a cut to like a rare and then <laughs> back to me, there was one where there's like a cut to Michael Jackson. Uh, In the spring, my favorite part was there. There's always a moment where I was like, "Remember Stockwell Day when he was first the leader of the Canadian Alliance, and he got elected to a seat in the Okanagan? Like, so comes from Alberta as the treasurer, goes to the BC Interior, gets elected. Um, It's 2000. He rides up on like a." Lake Okanagan on a jet ski in a wetsuit and barefoot, and does this press conference and then rides off. And Jean-Catena is like, "I can eat this guy for breakfast." And this is how we get the two thousand election about nothing. And my point is like, don't let your person do that. Ah, so (laughs) Paul came up with this whole like Baywatch thing. So every time I mention Stockwell Day, there's like a da da (laughs) kind of thing in the background. (laughs) It was great. Uh, I can't. I wouldn't be able to do any of this stuff. And like, it kind of helps that he's like he pays attention to politics but he's not like like he's not like a professional like does politics kind of person and so that means that he adds a whole other lens that I think is actually like more appropriate to getting through to my students than what I would ever use so but it's definitely been like it's been something right like the uh one of the things I've noticed for sure is that the pacing of my courses they're not like they would otherwise be because you can't like break it up over, Like everything's designed for like, you go to class and then you just kind of like work through content in each class until you're done it, right? But this, we're doing everything by week. So I have a one session, we come face-to-face, but it's after I've released a bunch of videos. And so I do it by topic. So some topics are like, here's your like 45 minutes. But it's never 45 minutes, who am I kidding? But like, (laughs) here's like your like hour and 20 versus your three hours, right? And it's, yeah. The other thing that's really interesting too is that I think, I know I did this as a student where you can kind of tune into a class and tune out uh, as work ramps up or ramps down. And Mm -hmm. in the stats class, the class is always like, there's a lot of weekly work and it's just one of those ones where you kind of can't avoid doing that, right? But I think for every other class, because the best advice that we got going into September was do lots of stuff that's really low risk so that there's nothing that like is super heavy and stresses everybody out all at the same time. And the end result is that In addition to all the weekly stuff all of us are still doing enough things that things get super stressed and heavy at the same time and so student workloads are way higher than what i think they usually are because uh in us trying to take the edge off we've actually ramped up the accountability which means that like you kind of can't slough off when you normally would so like some of these things where in hindsight it's just like oh yeah shoot like so we still have an awful lot to learn and i think my students are troopers they're doing well they're uh, they're doing well under really not great circumstances, so I'm very proud of them But I'm also just like oh it would be so nice to just be able <laughs> to walk into a class and give a lecture again Like we usually do. We're so much better at that, but
1: so yeah. th- This semester and th- this semester so in the I guess we're in the fall mm-hmm. semester still this semester is entirely online
2: uh, Yeah so-
1: and yeah. when, when this started in the spring it would have been online it was it, correct me if i'm wrong but it was online like there was a break in the middle of the basically the reading week or in the middle of the semester where it went so- from in class to online
2: it was March 13th, and I so, so I know that we got the call at about 4 p.m. on March – like, it was 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, be ready to go online by Monday. And I think wow. most of us were like, that's not reasonable. Like, And we weren't re- – like, even though I, like, literally have a video producer in the house, like, we weren't ready to go until late Tuesday, late Tuesday. Uh, and that was more kind of like a triage. We just – like, and if it's March, we had maybe, like – three, four weeks left of the term, like not the Mm -hmm. whole thing. So it was more just kind of like, hold on, get it done. We'll figure out, you know, um, the best way to like, just kind of get everybody through and then we'll come and see. Uh, but the, so for September, if we wanted to meet face to face, we would have had to have made a very persuasive argument that we absolutely could not teach the content unless we were in person. So, I know with a friend of mine who teaches down at the University of Lethbridge, like our line was, well, you can't teach intubation over Zoom, but pretty much everything we do in political mm-hmm. science, you absolutely can teach over Zoom. Uh, and I know, like, I feel as though this is maybe a bit, I get it, it's maybe a bit salty, but when we got the uh, indication before we really were properly on the exponential curve of the second wave, Uh, We got this impression that um, uh, there were powers that be that kind of wanted the universities to be more back face to face because, you know, if K through 12 is in person, then why isn't post-secondary kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I know my teaching assignments next term include a – so if a course was uh, small enough size – we, uh, we were encouraged to seriously consider having that face-to-face. And I remember one of my classes that I've got, it's a graduate seminar in Canadian politics, wonderful course. But I remember the last time I taught it, oh, not, not the last time, the time before that, um, you can just see whatever cold is making its way through campus. And my it was a bad one. It was the fall of 2018. Um, and I remember, or 2017, something along those lines, around 2017, Yeah. And I just remember watching it knock out my students one by one, like where they were like literally like flat out for like a week. And then because it's a three hour seminar, at some point you need to do hand hygiene and you can't and you touch your eyeball. And I was Mm -hmm. the last one to get it. And I was like, no, I really (laughs) wanted to avoid that. And so I'm thinking it's that seminar that makes me sick with like the eight to ten students. I was just like, nope, 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 nope. Like, also, I don't want to go into campus. And also, I want to make sure that I do everything to keep K through 4 in at a minimum, which means that I can sit for three hours and Zoom and talk. It's fine. I'll figure it out. Again, it could be, it's not ideal, but it certainly is a lot better than what it could be. So,
0: yeah, I think,
1: I think one of the, I mean, not, not quite untold stories, but perhaps one of the stories that maybe isn't getting enough attention that I hope, I mean, that I think people have a lot of time to reflect, people will have a lot of time to reflect on after, as the pandemic goes on, and and after this is comes to some kind of end, uh, is the I mean the the massive quick turnaround that took place in the education system in the mm-hmm. spring. Um, I mean, teachers. I mean, there are a lot of unsung you know unsung heroes, and it's kind of cheesy to to use that term, but there are a lot of heroes in the in this in this pandemic in terms of people who have kept things going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think teachers from you know from kindergarten all the way to colleges and universities and technical schools the ones who kept this kept things going and uh were able to pivot the way they did the way they have is i think it's really quite remarkable and it shows just how um yeah just how remarkable i think educators are in general and i mean I this applies to a lot of a lot of professions i mean obviously healthcare is is frontline healthcare workers are, are you know that's that's n- no doubt no doubt about what what's what's happening there but but mm-hmm. i think there's a yeah, I think there's the, not not necessarily getting the uh, the attention or perhaps even the respect that they deserve, and and I think as the, I mean, I've heard recently in in Calgary, in I mean, no, this isn't university level, but in in um, the Calgary Board of Education, there's been a lot of tension between recently between substitute teachers and the school board, um, with. Uh, you know, teachers having to go into into self-isolation and classes having to go into self-isolation when this uh the virus inevitably spreads into classrooms. So um I just say kudos to to educators for for you know being dealt a pretty uh you know, I'm I'm being a little salty, a pretty crappy hand in terms of trying to figure this out, but but being able to uh, to to adapt pretty quickly for the most part, I think.
2: Yeah, I gotta say for uh like for university teaching, it's about a third of our job. Uh, And one of the things I've noticed is that, and this is confirmed when I speak to colleagues and when we kind of systematically look at it, that it's gone from about 30% to all of it, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, some folks can't get in to do the research programs, but I know, like, that's not me, but a lot of people were like, oh, we're working from home. You should just be able to get all of this research done. And it's like, actually, no. Like, in addition addition to, like, the existential dread, which, like, I don't know how you measure that, but that does kind of take up a lot of mental bandwidth. um, Doing, like, learning pedagogy and thinking very carefully about, like, what exactly do I need my students to learn to, like, get through to say, like, that, course, it's on their transcript, which means I can like confidently say that they know what they need to know to be able to say that they've got that class. Um, for us at the university, I think it's fair to say that this is taking like double, triple, maybe even more of our time to do that well. Uh, and I know K through 12, like K through 12 teachers, a lot of people like to crap on teachers because they, I think it's some of the, the amount of work that they do over the course of 12 months is poorly understood like they're 12-hour jobs um under ideal circumstances and these circumstances are not ideal i i gotta say i'm looking at how teachers hold it together and i'm in awe like goodness knows some of us with like easier teaching assignments in a lot of ways are not and so like i i'm not quite sure like kudos doesn't quite seem like mm-hmm. useful enough you know like yeah
1: we need right. some kind of like academy award or, uh, yeah. or something for an, an order yeah. of Alberta for all the teachers.
2: Indeed, yeah. And I think like something else also for everybody on frontline healthcare. Like that's my mom's okay. an RN, and so mm-hmm. she uh recently retired, so she gave up her or her rather her registration expired at the end of September, and I've never been uh. I didn't actually think I would be grateful for the day to be honest but it's uh because she's over 65 so she would mm-hmm. be like a high risk worker for sure but I just keep looking with um I, I'm well past dread uh seeing what's happening on frontline healthcare and just thinking this is uh I have very I have thoughts I have lots of thoughts I don't know if you want to help direct no, the thoughts because it's like yeah
1: let's well let's 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 dive into that then because it's I mean it, it seems every I mean, going back to March, you know, I mean, Adam can attest to this. I mean, almost every 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 episode we end up talking about, in some form, end up talking about COVID. And mm-hmm. uh, there's just, there ends up being, I mean, there's obviously reoccurring themes and reoccurring issues that have come up with this government and that this government hasn't dealt with uh, in, in a way that I think a lot of people would find acceptable. Um Especially surrounding healthcare and and the work of healthcare workers and the the risks that healthcare workers are taking every every single day, every single shift they work. Um, but it seems that in Alberta, we've reached a point where it's eight months or eight or nine months since this since this pandemic began, since since the you know the first lockdown, first lockdown, I guess you'd call it back in back in March. Uh, Alberta, where are the we're we're not the only place where the spread where where the spread is happening, but it is intense, and we've seen a huge outbreak huge outbreak. Uh, cases are growing. We've had, I think, almost 600 people uh, have died of COVID uh, in this province. Um, I think we've now reached more than 18,000 active cases. Uh, I was looking on CBC the other day with the with their graph that shows the you know the 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 growth of cases, and you can really see it in in November. I mean, there was a there was the first wave, which looks tiny now uh, mm-hmm. back in the spring, and then it. Died down over the summer, and we were down into the teens, and even the single digits at one point for new daily increases. And then by the time November rolls around, it basically shoots straight up into straight up to the top of the graph. And it's it's just it, it's like the Mount Everest, Mount Everest compared to uh, you know a teensy little hill for the for the for the for the um, for the the active cases in the spring. But in so many ways, Alberta is an outlier in terms of the actions that the government is taking. Um, or the inactions that the Alberta government has taken, and and I, I kind of I boil it down to three. I mean, there's a lot of things we could we could talk about, but I mean, I boil it down to three. It's we have no pro- we're the only province without a provincial province-wide mask mandate. Mm-hmm. We are the uh, I think either we are one or two one or two of the only provinces without uh, without that have not activated the federal COVID alert app. And you know the 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 effectiveness of the app has you know it's. It's not going to solve all our problems, but it's, it seems to be, from everything I've seen, a lot more effective in places that it does work than the app we have working here in Alberta, the provincial app. That, that's, I think there was one report from the Globe and Mail a few weeks ago that said that there had been 19 cases that had been identified through the app since. Like you uh, actually
2: have to work hard to only be able to identify, it. like, if several hundred thousand people download it and you can only yeah. trace 19, like, yeah. you can't make that up like you yeah. actually on your wildest imaginations if you want to say like what would be a plausible failure you could not make that up and say that that was plausible, right like it's just unbelievable
1: yeah, yeah. it's 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 almost worse than useless because i think it gives some people a sense of false hope it's yeah. so inactive that that you know there's there's it may actually it may actually hurt to to uh, you know to to not having da- having downloaded the fe- the federal I've, app and
2: i have a friend who's a respiratory therapist and it didn't catch the had the provincial app and it didn't catch yeah. her covid case
1: yeah, I so, mean,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, and and you look at that. I mean, the contact tracing uh, has essentially totally collapsed in Absolutely. this province. I know, uh, Verna Yu, from the CEO of Alberta Health Services, was on, at the podium uh, the, on Friday talking about how the province was the HS was hiring more. You know, I think they had plans to hire eight hundred or a thousand contact tra- contact tracers, but in a lot of ways, it, it's it seems like a uh, you know it, it's. This is what they should have been doing over the summer in terms of of beefing up the the type of capacity because we knew that uh, you know, I mean every public health professional, every doctor, every nurse uh, who who was t- was talking in the media over the summer was saying a second wave was coming, a second wave was coming, and we had the ability to prepare. But it seemed like the government, in a lot of ways, just sat on their hands over the over the summer, um, and then we learned this this past week about. million that the federal government had basically made available to the province for for extra pay for frontline workers. Um, whether it be frontline healthcare workers, whether it be corrections officers, um, mm-hmm. and, and there was kind of a, a, a few other categories involved in there, um, and the Alberta government hasn't accessed it. It's essentially just three hundred million that's uh, that was on the table that that the Alberta government, and I believe Alberta was the only province that didn't access the types of that types yeah. of funds that the federal government made available.
2: Worse, worse than that, you've got like issues managers. Mm-hmm. What is it? Last week, going after nurses for overtime. As if there is something out of whack about uh, overtime pay in a pandemic when you are running out of trained staff who are able to run care in ICUs, right? So, uh, like, how can we understand what's going on with this, right? And, like, as a political scientist, I have to say... One of the uh, how should, the the overarching comment I want to say is uh, Ian Brody, who is um, uh, was Stephen Harper's chief of staff, like first back in 2006, is a departmental colleague of mine. And one of the things mm-hmm. that he says, and I think he's right about it, is that political scientists don't like politics very much. And so remember, <laughs> every time I talk to people from high school, they're like, "You're in politics," and I'm like, "I'm not. I'm a political scientist. <laughs> it is not the same thing." Uh, and so the the thing I would like to like the overarching statement is that. It's like, what do we offer as a field that can help people understand um, what's going on in terms of current events, right? And so for me, I think that pay one is a pretty easy one. If you're looking at um, past government activity here, if you've got a government prioritizing um, public sector pay cuts, and also fighting with the federal government because they wanna cast the federal government as a consistent enemy, as opposed to a partner that we work with, Um, do we really think that that government is going to go and work with the federal government to get more pay for the people that they keep saying shouldn't be paid as much as what they are? Uh, And actually even like, what was it last week, going back and saying, uh, at least on social media, at least in certain areas, oh, um, some of these nurses, these nurses shouldn't be making six figures because they're racking down all the overtime and they're doing it on purpose. And like anybody who knows anything about nursing Mm -hmm. knows that like, no one really wants to be called in on the next day. Really? No one Mm -hmm. wants to be called in when they like have a day off because they've got like other things that they do on their days off. Right? Like this is a, you do it because there's a necessity or you do it because you've been mandated in. So like, it's just like, it's a particularly, Uh, And the other thing that really gets me is that Alberta's got one of the most um, uh, profound, longstanding, um, unmovable gender gaps in pay uh, in the country, which means that women disproportionately significantly earn a lot less than men. And it's worse in Alberta than what it is in other provinces, Uh, in large part because there are some jobs that like men are much more likely to access that that used to pay a whole lot more. I don't know if those jobs are ever coming back. Um, yeah, well, the
0: oil
1: and gas sector.
2: Oil and gas extraction in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that but so th- anyway this idea that anytime like Jim Prentice said much the same thing as well back in 2015 uh once the price of oil crashed and you know we start trying to figure out what do we do without that in terms of public coffers. Uh, and they always go to this idea oh public sector workers are making too much money but public sector workers are like majority women, if not supermajority, depending on which part you're looking at, nurses and teachers in particular, uh-huh. and so, if you're going to say nurses and teachers make too much money in Alberta, it's like saying women make too much money in Alberta and then less framed. It's like, actually, are you sure about that? Like, is it? And so for me, it's also, I always have to ask the question being kind of like, is this a hostility to the public sector or is it a hostility to women or is it both? Um, So that cues a whole bunch of things. Um, But I'm also not surprised, at least short term, thinking that if you've got like a stated goal of a government is to um, uh, deal with public sector uh, remuneration in a way that like involves scaling it back, often quite dramatically. Uh, And like I think that whole the whole attack on the physicians is related exactly to that as well. So like there's there's lots of stuff going on in terms of public sector compensation and then also the premier. In 2019, during the fall federal election, um, literally went to Ontario and said that Justin Trudeau is an existential threat to Alberta. This is not true, but this is what the premier campaigned on in a federal election campaign. And so in, with those two things of like we want, uh, the, I think this government really does want many Albertans to see the federal government as the enemy as opposed to a partner. So, And they also don't want nurses to earn more. So like, of course, they've left that money on the table. There was never any intention of ever doing anything with that. Uh, despite the fact that it would be welcome. And if people were actually going vote over to them, why not the feds pay for it? I don't know, just a thought. That would be reasonable. Um, the same thing with the app. It just feels like a fit of peak. Like they want to be, the provincial government wants to be first and wants to be able to say that they beat the feds on something, even though it's very clear that they haven't. Um, and if you're looking at things in terms of privacy and like for privacy advocates, like when privacy advocates say the federal app um, does a reasonably good job at balancing privacy rights with public health considerations, uh, and then they can't say the same thing about the Alberta one, part of me is like, why wouldn't you just be like, yeah, we tried something, we wanted to be first, we wanted to be innovative, we thought we had a good idea, uh, it didn't work out the way that we wanted to, and so we're gonna pivot and we're gonna do the thing that um, we'll use the app that's better, right? Or we'll use the thing that works. Like that. this is something that is incapable of being said, is i think one of my biggest concerns right and and also when it comes to like planning in the summer um i can't escape like like if i'm being honest about looking at many provincial governments i am not sure i could identify any or many rather Um, that planned well over the summer for the second wave, right? Like, I think this is like, if I'm looking across the board at a lot of governments, I think that the only ones that seemed to actually do things reasonably well were the Atlantic bubble, Mm -hmm. where they were like, how are we going to do this to make sure? And it's interesting how like that bubble's now collapsed, but uh, in that collapse, they've gone from being like, well, we'll like bubble all the Atlantic provinces. And then the moment that you get like, what is it? A couple hundred cases across all of those provinces. They're back locked down, and they're like, if you come into the province from somewhere else in Canada, you have to quarantine for 14 days. So they're doing stuff
0: mm-hmm. that
2: we're not, right? And they're doing stuff that none of the the larger provinces that are clearly on an exponential curve in terms of COVID are, are prepared to do. And so I look like that seems to be a significant difference I can work across these provincial governments. So. This is where I think as an Albertan, I have like the least amount of hope because our provincial government seems to be the most resistant to actually using more forceful measures. Like you, like we're expanding programs at border crossings, either at airports or at land crossings to say that people don't have to quarantine for 14 days um, if they've got like a negative COVID test. Um, when they cross the border from another country, much less another province, right? Like it seems as though there's such a laissez-faire approach where when you combine attacks on healthcare workers that come from either directly like the premier and cabinet or their proxies as issue managers, um, And any kind of other, like, negative or hostile statements about, like, especially frontline healthcare workers, frontline public sector workers, like, even in the most recent fiscal update, this idea that, like, public sector workers contribute nothing to the economy, and they don't generate wealth and all of that jazz, and you've got all of that, when we need a robust public sector to actually be able to, like, deal with the crisis. And if you combine that with a complete unwillingness to actually, like, lock anything down and especially to lock anything down with the support that's required to properly lock it down like in places that have actually gotten to zero are now looking they've got a semblance of normal life uh it's a forceful lockdown plus supports allows especially small business to just like stay in stasis like payroll stasis rent stasis it costs an awful lot of money but you spend the money and you do it um and then you just get it done uh and get down to zero like this seems to be internationally the thing that you do and so Mm -hmm. i'm in like a bit of a rambling rant at this point but it's like i'm not surprised that things seem to be like disastrously bad here when you've got on one hand like official government rhetoric that is openly hostile to the public sector, Uh, and then, like, a very laissez-faire attitude of, well, if we just recommend things and just talk about education, then everything will be fine, and we don't actually have to plan for anything after, like, an education failure, and here's where, like, Nobel Prize-winning research that political scientists use, so it's the Nobel Prize in economics, but it was Eleanor Ostrom, who was a political scientist, and so, like, all of us, like, women in political science are like, she's a political scientist and she has a Nobel Prize, yes, Um, even though it's in economics. Anyway, um, (laughs) I remember, like, so her research helps and, like, the applications of her research helps explain why, like, just asking people nicely and just focusing on education is always going to lead to a failure because, first, like, the overwhelming majority of people will do it and they'll be like, yes, those rules, if they're clear and I understand exactly what I need to do, people will be like, yes, I will follow the rules. Um, but there's a small but significant minority of folks who are like, if it's not in my self interest to put myself out to follow the rules, I'm not going to do it. And so this is why all the rules have to be followed with sanctions that are meaningfully applied because there is a kind of selfish person out there where, like, you need to make it um, in their like rational, like egotistical selfish self-interest to follow the rules. Like I don't want a $3,000 fine. I remember calling a bylaw officer in Calgary because I'm cheap, not because I'm selfish. Where I was like, if I take a tape measure and I meet a friend that like, with the tape measure where it's like six feet away and I'm outside, I remember this was in like April, where it was just kind of like, I can be with somebody who's not in my household, but six feet away. I actually brought a tape measure and I like put it between us <laughs> and was like, do you see? And there were bylaw officers around because they were ticketing in the spring. And I was like, we yeah. are six feet apart. Do you see? Do you see? And every time it's just like, here are the recommendations, but we're not going to be enforcing Where you see like an anti-mask rally and the peace officers are like, we're just enforcing, but we're not ticketing as if ticketing isn't enforcement. Like, it's just...
1: They're just standing around, basically.
2: Yeah, it just beggars' beliefs in a lot of ways.
0: This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you in part by Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. You should also check out Vital Signs, an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. You can learn more about the Edmonton Community Foundation and all that they do in our community at ecfoundation.org. This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is also brought to you by Taproot Edmonton presents igniting innovation. It's a new podcast series on the evolution of Edmonton's tech startup scene. Emily Rendell Watson explores how startups and investors are coming together to build what's next. You'll hear the stories of entrepreneurs, new and experienced tech investors, and those who are working to support the sector. Search for "igniting innovation" in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the app of your choice. You can also find it at presents.taprootedmonton.ca.
1: There's a number of things about this government, the the Alberta government, that I mean, I think have really exposed themselves. A lot of features, characteristics, characteristics of this government that have really been exposed during the pandemic. I mean, I think the first one is they can't pivot. Is they were elected in 2019 on a platform of that essentially boiled down to jobs economy pipelines and when the pandemic started in the spring they were you know jason kenney tried to be front and center they had a lot of big photo ops they you know there they they was maybe were, they were shipping P- uh, ppe to other provinces uh, and then, at some point over the summer or in the spring, they re- they tried to shift gears back to jobs, the economy and pipelines. And at that point, I think economy and jobs were that wasn't, you know, that was basically a lost lost cause at that point. Um, but pipelines was kind of the one of the one of the big things they tried to talk about again over the summer because, I mean, as we all know, up until March, pipelines were basically the only thing we talked about in Alberta politics. It was it sucked up all almost all the oxygen. Um, the other i mean, the the other characteristic is the, they there's a pathological inability to admit they've made a mistake or they've done or or, or they, they've or, or they've done something wrong, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean the, the the I mean the tactics seem to be or the strategy seems to be is always deflect deflect back to your opponent, always attack the NDP, um, but. Mm-hmm. Part of not being able to mit- admit your mistakes and not ever being, ever having to apologize is also part of the not being able to pivot. And mm-hmm. I, I see this framed anytime Premier Kenny or Health Minister Tyler Shandro or the, anyone in the government is asked about, you know further restrictions or a lockdown. I mean, we, we have healthcare, you know, hundred. there was a, a letter that was going around a few weeks ago where there were 300 public health or 300 physicians. There were three major public sector healthcare unions that signed the letter calling for, uh, you know, a two or three week lockdown in order to, to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, and the government's response is almost always framed as it's a, deci- it's a binary decision about what we're do what they're doing now, and a total complete uh, authoritarian police state lockdown. And as if there's nothing in between that can be done when, I mean, anybody who's looking at what other provinces are doing will know, okay, well, Toronto is doing stuff. They're not, you know, it's not a total, it's not, Toronto is not a police state. Um, you know, Vancouver is not a police state. Um, there are things that other pro- other actions and other measures that other provinces and other jurisdictions are taking that, that are in between that. And I mean, the the argument I've been hearing from from the public health professionals is that the longer we wait, the longer we drag our feet and not take those big actions, the more likely it is we're going to have to eventually take drastic actions. Uh, in or the government's basically going to be forced into taking drastic actions. I'm not so sure about this government because if they haven't been moved and pushed to do that until this point, uh, I'm not sure at what point they'll be pushed to push to do that. And you make a good point to say that in in Canada, I mean things are bad in Alberta, but Things are not great in Quebec. Things are not great in Ontario. Uh, in British Columbia, they've seen cases increase, not to the same amount as in Alberta. Uh, but the Atlantic provinces seem to be the only place that we we uh, that, that in Canada they seem to have, uh, you know, at least a, a coherent approach to to dealing with COVID. And then of course Manitoba, where where things are quite you know quite dire, uh, and we had the uh, you know the 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 premier of Manitoba on a video or on in an interview was video was circulated online. Uh, basically, talking about how we're going to have to, you know, cancel family Christmases because of this, and and part part we we, talked, we discussed this in our previous episode with uh, with Annalise Klingbeil about um, government communications and there being a total lack of expectations management around around this. And this is more of a, I mean, it's more of a maybe maybe more of a communications discussion, but I, th- I mean, I think it, there is a, a poli-sci discussion. But I mean, I guess my question to you is, is who? Why is Alberta? <laughs> why are we in the position where our government isn't isn't taking action? Is there a group that do you think there's a group or certain Albertans that 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 Jason Kenny is trying to appeal to by not taking the type of actions that that other provinces are? And I, I mean I, I talk specifically about the the mask mask mandate, but I mean we can also talk about man also talk about uh, vaccinations and mandatory vaccinations and what what Kenny had to say about this week this week because. There are provinces, and this is what I'm, when I'm talking about the mask mandate, there are, there are large parts of Ontario, large parts of British Columbia, large parts of Saskatchewan, large parts of Quebec, where the rural areas of that province, the people in those rural areas are just as conservative or if, if not more conservative than the people who live in, in rural Alberta.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so what is it specifically about Alberta that this government uh, just doesn't seem to, doesn't feel or doesn't feel the need or doesn't feel like they can go that far?
2: So I don't think this is an Alberta thing. And I'm going to push back against uh, the stereotype that Alberta, like, gets, like, shoved into this cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I say that as a rural Albertan who, like, yeah. Um, So part of me is just, like, the, like... I think Albertans would go there. I think that if we had leadership that would take us there, most Albertans would go. So I don't think that this is an Alberta thing. Um, I will say that the rigidity that on the part of this particular government is the thing that concerns me the absolute most about this government, where it seems as though um, they seem, there's no evidence that seems to motivate or to that would like actually get them to the point where they're like, maybe we are on the wrong course, right? Uh, and like, this worries me across, like obviously the problems associated with this are apparent in the pandemic, but I have a, another research project that looks at energy transition. And so we're in the midst of um, collecting data now, but we had data from the spring of 2019 immediately following the provincial election and super majorities of Albertans want us to transition to renewables. Um, And the idea of like moving away from fossil fuels is a different idea than moving towards renewable sources of energy, right? Like it's not uh, an either or or a dichotomous kind of thing, but we're seeing things like the energy market in the world changing dramatically and changing dramatically faster than what anybody ever anticipated. And so to get back to this idea of like jobs, pipelines, the economy, like the boom nostalgia that really, like, I look at 2019 and I was like, there's, I see a lot of people who voted in 2019 who otherwise wouldn't. And what motivated them was the, I, but I just want the boom back. Like, I just want 2012 mm-hmm. back, right? And it's not coming back. And that's the problem where what Alberta needed was leadership that would actually, like, read the writing on the wall and help us pivot to stay energy leaders, right? This, I don't think this government has the capacity to do that. And I think it has to do with how they see ideology and how they see partisanship. And so the research that I'm borrowing on this is most well developed in the United States. Uh, And so listeners could fairly ask the question, well, how exactly does this generalize to Canada, where our politics is a lot more complicated because um, because we have multiple political parties, right? And I would say, I think we have no good reason to expect that this wouldn't translate here. And so when I talk about ideology, I don't mean uh, a systematic set of values and beliefs that lead to coherent policy. I think we all want to think of ideology like that, uh, but like public opinion research since we started doing it and like really good scholarship on political behavior and public opinion has shown that people don't actually think about ideology in terms of like a kind of systematic program kind of way. They think about it in terms of identity. So and this is how like, I remember with Florida, people were like with the presidential election, people were saying, how could Florida vote for Trump and then also for a ballot initiative that gets a $15 minimum wage? And it's like, well, because my American colleagues are like, because people like a $15 minimum wage and like Albert and me is like. I guess they do unless they have to pay it. I don't know. <laughs> like watching that whole like yeah, watching how all that got like politicized for younger people as well. Anyway, leaving that aside. Um, that was a rationale where just like people will like what they like and it, like ideological thinking is not programmatic. Um, so the research that comes from the US shows that people will identify socially with their um part of the ideological spectrum and they'll sometimes also identify socially with their political party. And so what this means, and so not everybody who identifies with a party is polarized like this. So this is getting at like effective polarization. And by Mm -hmm. effective, I mean like emotional polarization. So not every partisan is like this, um, but those who are, and I would go so far as to say people who see like their, um, their ideology as a really key part of their identity and their partisanship is a really key part of their identity. They'll say things like, um, they'll be more likely to think that their are uh, when they think of their, when they meet somebody who also identifies with their party or their ideology, they feel an affinity with them. If somebody praises their party or their ideology, they feel good. Um, if somebody criticizes their party or their ideology, they feel personally attacked. Um, and so when we ask this, like, we'll, uh, we'll ask people if they lean a little bit, like the classic measurement of this is we ask people if they l- feel a little bit closer to one party or another. And if they say yes, classic people say in Canada anyway, okay, well, how strong, right? And people who are like, oh, I identify with this party. Uh, and when we say, well, how strong, they're like, well, not really. Like we wouldn't count that person as a partisan. It would be the people who are like, yeah, mm-hmm identify with them and identify with them strongly. But we can still get people who say that and still say when we say, well, we're thinking about that party. Like if somebody critiques that party, how often do you feel that it's like a personal insult? The person who says never is going to behave very differently than the person who says always, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that you've got these people who like always feel like their personal identity is loaded in with their party and their personal identity is loaded in with their ideology. And so any kind of criticism uh, and I would, so for me, it would be like any kind of criticism, any kind of pivot becomes this like high risk personalized thing that actually like makes people hurt. So it's, it's a very different kind of stake. And so you can see in the research in the United States is that, uh, congressional Republicans could sell policy during the Obama presidency so these Republicans could sell to their base policies that actually caused them harm, caused them economic harm, would cause them harms in terms of health care, but like actual economic harms, like they did a bunch of government shutdowns and those government shutdowns harmed their supporters, but their supporters were, went with them because uh, they could say, well, we're beating the other side. And so if you're one of these, so for partisans who feel this way, where they're like, you attack my party, you attack me. Um, you know, we're all like, when they, when they start to see their identity through these kinds of politicized lenses, uh, what matters most is beating the other side, as opposed to good policy, or policy that causes like the minimum amount of harm, or dare I say, actually helps people, no matter what their ideology or partisanship is. And so translated to COVID uh I have colleagues in the states that say that they thought at some point those who are like already committed to either denying that COVID is a thing denying that COVID is serious uh or like refusing things like masks things along those lines like if you're listening to the the Republican governor of South Dakota Mm -hmm. where they're saying we're the freest place where like what is it? Like, I think at least like one in 1000 cell decodants has now been infected and it's getting worse. Mm, repeatedly, it's, right? it's a
1: disaster. Yeah. It's,
2: it's, it's so bad. Uh, what they're finding is that there's no evidence that's actually, sh- so the hypothesis was once this gets to a certain point, once it gets bad enough, this is going to tip, right? And there's some research that shows That might be possible, but there's some research, the research is also confirming that for some folks, like they, there's no shifting. There's just no shifting them. And it's the only way that I can explain it. And I would actually apply that to, say, faith-based and religious communities um, in Canada as well, where they're prioritizing a certain kind of politicized identity over everything else right so I'm going to be really critical about some faith-based communities when they say um, the most important thing is for us to be able to gather and have whatever worship services we want in a context of a global pandemic when those way that we would normally like if you have congregational singing or something along those lines those are super spreader events like I'm a choral singer I haven't the first thing that got shut down was my choir Mm-hmm. And it should have been. And they should be the last things that come back because they like aerosolize a room for like hours. Like that is the point of singing. Like it just does that, right? So the the same, the what gets people to be like, no, I'm not going to follow the science. I'm going to rigidly hold to like, I'm not going to change my direction on this one is this idea that it would, they're prioritizing a kind of identity and any kind of pivot or any kind of shift actually like harms the self-concept in a lot of ways. Um, And so this is why I can see why there's going to be some folks who are going to be completely resistant to the idea of a mask mandate, or they're going to say they're going to be completely resistant to the idea that, um, they might have made a mistake and that they actually need to change directions. Now, the question is, do I really think this holds for the Premier and the Cabinet? And I think for some of them, it must, to be honest. Um, uh, Or some of them are savvy enough to know that this is what's going on. And so they are just doing and saying the things that they need to to maintain these particular identities amongst their supporters but I also think one of the things that's going on uh and there's been one column that has just been published about this one um I I didn't see it tweeted by the author uh but I did I, I did kind of see this quote it was a Globe and Mail column and I saw it yesterday and it was this idea that like it's trying to get at this idea like why isn't somebody like Jason Kenney as premier, with all of the tools and levers at the disposal of the premier, why isn't he pivoting and why are they continuing to constantly talk about the NDP? And a reasonable hypothesis is, uh, and like, why are not they talking about like a shutdown that actually like includes supports for business? Like, why Mm -hmm. are they saying everybody's like, anti-business if they're saying support business so that we can lock this down and then people can go into a store without worrying about whether or not they're going to get sick in the store, right? And my thinking is that I want to know who he's listening to in terms of business. And I want to know how many of those groups are like, if you put in a mask mandate, we'll withdraw our support and form a new political party, right? And so this is the thing, like the NDP is not the enemy here. The NDP should never be framed as the enemy in a global pandemic um like forget the party labels like everybody in every legislature in canada should be coming together to figure out the best way to deal with this thing and if they are not they've got to be doing it for some very particular partisan choice and so when you frame it in terms of identity for me the best explanation is that maybe the right isn't as united as what some hope Or there's a fear that depending on the policy response that's put in place to appropriately deal with a global pandemic of a very contagious virus, that some parts of the right of the political spectrum are going to split away from a party like the UCP. And they know that when the right is divided, um, particularly in this context, um, odds are pretty good that a party like the NDP would then be able to be very competitive for government again. And so I look at a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing and I can't shake the hypothesis. And I'm using that very deliberately because I would need a lot more evidence to confirm that this is actually what's going on, but I can't shake the question and I can't shake the hypothesis that much of this is being done, uh, like the primary goal is to preserve power Mm
0: -hmm.
2: as opposed to the primary goal is to do what's best for Albertans. Now some people are going to listen to that and say, well, what's best for Albertans is that the UCP stays in power. And I actually think that that's probably an idea that's like prevalent in cabinet and elsewhere Mm -hmm. too. Um, But I would then go and say like every business that needs a robust, like holiday season retail period, that's like busy is going to like struggle because we have not done what we've needed to do with the pandemic to be able to get us to that point, right? Like we're not doing businesses mm-hmm. any favors in this context. Um, we're not doing healthcare any favors in this context. We're literally doing no one any favors in this context, right? And so while I'm sympathetic, the government's choices, like I don't envy the position that they're in. Like, and if, I, if I'm if i right about this, um, they're in a position where people who are not polarized conservatives or polarized UCP partisans are looking at this being like you're making the wrong choices and like you're obviously making the wrong choices contrary to like the best scientific advice that you're getting. This is unconscionable. Uh, Then you've also got um, like people who might be open to, say, voting for the UCP, but then, like, losing their business on this and being like, again, you're making the wrong choices and this is unconscionable. But then you've also got the people who are like, put a province-wide mask mandate in and I'm leaving and forming my own party and you're never going to get elected ever again, right? That said, like, so I'm sympathetic, but I'm also not at some point because, like, if... If there's something to this argument the idea that you would as a government that had the power to stop what's going on now and had the power to stop it months ago as well um or even like like last month when we like put the half-assed restrictions that were in at first right like the idea that you wouldn't do the thing that needs to be done because you want to be in a position that you maintain power more like that simply making that choice alone to me means that like whoever is making that choice doesn't deserve power. Like if that's, that's the reason why you're doing it. I go back, go back to like Plato, like literally going back to like, like old dusty, like Greek philosophers. Like there's a reason why they're just kind of like, this is why you make the people who actually don't want to govern go into government because they won't (laughs) make choices like that. Um, And so in this, so like for me, I, I keep rolling around being like, okay, so I understand the political psychology of some supporters where like there's going to be a lot of folks being like, don't you dare do it. And we saw with this like in Lethbridge and in Calgary and in Edmonton and honestly, even in Vancouver with like these anti-mask protests being like Mm -hmm. don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And it would be like, these are the people where like you need to try to reach them as government. Fair enough. But like they are not the group that you pander to. And anybody who does pander to them um, and lets people die as a result, or, like, lets people get this disease, period. Like, it sounds... Even a mild case sounds absolutely terrible. Um, like, nobody wants to get it. Uh, the... I... Like, it's just unconscionable to me to, like, not do the thing that needs doing just because you're afraid of losing political power. Like, I actually can't get my head around that.
1: Yeah, and and it's, it's concerning, like, <clears throat> when... Premier Kenny, uh, when they enrolled, when they they hit his press conference earlier last week, and they they rolled out what a vaccination distribution plan might look like. And I mean, there's, so there's still quite a few ifs and a lot of unknowns around what this might look like in 2021. Um, but he seemed to very, very deliberately get out and talk about how this wouldn't be a mandatory vaccination. How this, you know, the government was actually going to remove its powers to 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 actually. Implement mandatory vaccinations and I mean it seemed very clear at that point that he was appealing there were there were groups that Have anti-vaccination um, uh, Sentiments that he was appealing to I mean there's there's really no no other way no other way to explain that and I mean Appealing to these smaller groups and you made you made a, a good point. I think about who the UCP sees as it's not necessarily its enemy, but but who's who they see as who they need to focus on politically in order to stay out of trouble in order to kind of preserve that coalition that they built because i do think that there there are fractures in the PC Wild Rose coalition that created the UCP it was brought together so quickly and i think i mean obviously power is the biggest glue that will hold them together uh, as as is almost in always the short term.
2: in the, short, in the term. short term
1: but i think i think i think it is a lot more of a fragile coalition than a lot of people think Mm-hmm. um they won a very commanding majority in in 2019 i mean the 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 a big majority of seats uh, they won a majority of the votes they um, they won massive landslides in 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 rural, in rural areas um, but the the base of the pc party i'm talking about the activist membership base of the pc party and the activist membership base of the wild rose party are different beasts and that's why the wild rose party split away from the pc party to begin with in the 2000s um mm-hmm. you know, there's the, their their membership bases are, are are very different. And it very much feels like like Premier Kenny is playing towards the the Wild Rose membership base. And I think when when you talked about how the UCP continues to focus on attacking the NDP, on attacking Ottawa, I mean, this is, I mean, a political science term that you'll be familiar with. this is this is negative partisanship. This is always positioning your opponent as, as the problem. And I think that I mean, the framing is that by the time the next election rolls around, Things will have been, you know, even without the pandemic, times would have been very tough over the next four years in Alberta with the economy. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of indications that the, the enemies of Alberta's economy as the, our current government would see it are not really the far left or, you know, eco socialists in Europe. The, the the enemy of Alberta's economy is very much the free market, which seems to be moving in a very different direction. These large companies, investment firms, banks are moving in, in a very different direction.
2: So can I, this is the thing that I was at initially most surprised of at the data for like attitudes towards energy transition in Alberta. The, there are two groups that were by our data that we took in the spring of 2019 that were the most opposed to energy transition the first made a lot of sense these are the people we called them they had a lot of hope in oil and gas where they're super proud of the alberta oil and gas industry and also really specifically say that they think it will continue to be the most important industry in alberta 50 years in the future so very much thinking mm-hmm. like the profile of the energy market is not going to change and this is the only way that we're going to make money now it strikes me as very unentrepreneurial, but that. Is just me perhaps. I don't think that's just me. The other group was a little bit more surprising, particularly because so much of this is being dictated by the free market. And these are what we described as market conservatives. So they're like, government should get out of business's way when it comes to um uh making jobs. Like we had no indicators in there. Like one of the classic ones that indicators that people might use would be people who want to prioritize the economy over the environment every time. And we we took that out of there, but it was basically. People who believed in trickle-down economics, people who wanted job creation to only come from business and not from the government, um, and this idea that like when business makes a lot of money, everybody benefits, including the poor, like people, people who are just kind of like the best way to like tie all of those ide- attitudes together is this idea that like um, the market is great and we should totally be listening to the market. And part of me is like, but the market is telling you something very clear like Mm -hmm. really, very clearly. And that's, it's like renewables are cheaper and like oil in particular is like less so. And also like Alberta's in particular is really not like part Mm -hmm. of me is like, how could you not read the writing on the wall? My God. But like the Albertans that are most opposed to moving away from fossil fuels towards renewable sources of energy um we thought this whole idea of like pitching like but if you want to keep making money that's the pivot that you need to do and they're like no (laughs) absolutely not like it's yeah it's this is why we're doing another data collection because it's like uh i want to know if if market conservatives elsewhere in canada think that way and i bet they don't but i also want to know if we can like start to see any kind of erosion and if we can I won't get into this particular study, but like we have a couple of interventions that we put in to see if we can erode it ourselves. Um as well, just to see uh like what how malleable this might be. But I was I was kind of taken aback at this idea of like the people who are just like, but the market are also like the ones that are like most not listening to the market for sure. Oh
1: well, I wonder I wonder, I mean, earlier earlier in our conversation, you talked about self-identity or how, how, how individuals self-identify in, in, in terms of partisanship and, and kind of ideology or loose ideology. Um, I mean, I, I I do think that, I mean, oil is, for a lot of Albertans, I mean, it is part of our self-identity, that economy. It's what yeah. what defined us for so many years. So
2: I gotta say though, that effect about like, the two things I would say is that that identity in terms of like ideology and stuff like that, um, we shouldn't we wouldn't expect it to map like coherently onto attitudes uh which is like if somebody's listening to that being kind of like what it's like yeah no people don't think coherently about these things like just expect all mm-hmm. of this stuff to be contradictory and then like you will be empirically accurate mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the it but the other thing is that those attitudes about the market they power through over identification with oil and gas they power th- over partisanship they power over ideology. So there's literally something about thinking systematically about like the market in that way that's doing heavy lifting that this other stuff isn't, which is, yeah, that's the part where it's just like, really? Like, so it could be that people are just like identifying with the market. And I bet like, this is salty of me, but I bet if we asked if they self-identified as an entrepreneur, they would like load on that one as well. As a, I'm rolling my eyes with that because I'm <laughs> at an entrepreneurial university. And part of me is like, an entrepreneurial way of doing research is like the really important fundamental basic stuff that doesn't get easily commercialized because none of the good commercialization happens without us grinding that stuff out first. Like Mm -hmm. stop asking me to like, commercialize my stuff because <laughs> like that's not what the entrepreneurial side of it is anyway well that's a whole that
1: that that, that 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 is a whole, whole other discussion that i would love to have another another uh episode yeah when you want to yet, chat so. about
2: like the politics of post-secondary oh yeah okay, I'll come okay well
1: I, I i will i will put you on the list and i will send you the invite because that there there is so much to talk about there and and just i just want to add just anecdotally so years ago um, when I was, this is like feels like a million years ago now, and and you know in politics, it basically was a million years ago. But when I was the vice president external of the University of Alberta Students Union, we used to do these things called rural tours. And the whole idea was to get outside the city and talk to, go pick a you know pick a region of the, of the province or you know, a, a couple towns, and a couple times a year, three or four times a year, we'd drive out and we'd meet with people in the communities and talk to local people. Outside the big cities, about the issues that that, uh, that are facing university that we're facing university undergraduate students at the time, and the, the the reason I'm thinking about this is when you talked about how people self-identify, um, and the kind of looseness of 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 the ideology around that. Sometimes we met with a we had a great trip out to Lloydminster, and we stopped in Vermil- I think we stopped in Vermillion and Lloydminster, and a couple of the communities around there. You know, great part of the province. Very beautiful, great people, um, and we would we'd meet with the Rotary Club. We'd meet with the Chamber of Commerce. We'd meet with one, some town councilors and talk about, you know, what some of the issues that um, that students from their communities who'd go into the cities to to go to these big universities would face. And I remember one particular meeting where it was in the it was in the back office of the uh, it was in the back office of the uh, John Deere dealership. In Lloyd Minster, I think, I believe it was Lloyd Minster, and the manager, it was the manager or the owner, anyway, really nice guy, he was the, I think he was the president of the Rotary Club or president of the Chamber of Commerce, and we had a meeting with him and we were just talking, uh, and one of the big issues at the time, because it was during, during the height of the boom in the early 2000s, was student housing, because vacancy rates in Edmonton were, like, at a negative percent, and students were having to rent out broom closets, basically, to find a place to live, because the economy was booming and there was no place to live, so... One of the things we were talking to him about was affordable student housing and government-funded student housing, and I remember one of the comments was that his responses were, uh, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really conservative, and I always vote conservative, but I do agree with you. I think that there should be government-funded student housing in Edmonton. I'm, you know, I'm really conservative, and you know, I'm, I vote conservative, but I think tuition should be a lot lower. And you know, so these were the issues that because the appeal that we were making was that okay, you want your your children to be able to go to the university or go to the, move to the cities and access these universities and access these technical colleges, but if there's no place for them to live uh, or to stay, you know, it, it doesn't matter if they get they get accepted or not. So that j- just just as a, as a kind of an anecdotal addition, that was one of the things that that really. And I mean, I grew up in a small town, so obviously I know it's it's a lot more complicated than than just kind of black and white urban rural. Um, on, on political issues, um, but that, that's one of the, one of the conversations that I always kind of go back to when I think about, um, you know, people who typecasts or stereotype rural Alberta as always being, you know, hardcore conservative, hardcore this, hardcore that compared to ur- urban areas. And I think that there, there is a lot more, um, it is a lot more, I mean, it, it is a lot more diverse in terms of opinions, even though the self identity is very strong there. And I remember back in the 2000s, I think it was the 2000s, um, Mark Lysak wrote a book about, I think it was Taking Back Alberta Politics, I think was the book he wrote, and I, I may have got that wrong, but the name wrong, but um, one, one of the things that he focused on was that self-identity, and he talked a bit about public opinion polling and about what, uh, what um, uh, how, Albertans, how Albertans self-identified versus some of the values that they actually actually practice.
2: Yeah, there's a so one of the things I've done had the great pleasure to do is to serve as an academic advisor for CBC Calgary as part of their Road Ahead series, Mm -hmm. where we've gotten really good, um, just kind of like general public opinion data. Uh, We started in 2018, uh, like a year out from the 2019 election. And then we repeated around. I mean, the election was the election. And then we were in the field um, the two weeks before COVID hit. And so we know that like, halfway through our data collection was when like Russia and Saudi Arabia and OPEC um, were fighting. And then basically Alberta oil was like, we had to pay people to take it. Like we we hit the negative number as the price we were getting on the international market for our oil. Um, And what was interesting is through that, and I will say I'm a, one of the pieces I wrote on this was as a like, What's the difference between rural Alberta compared to the cities? Because people are going to want to say, and people do say this, where they're like, oh, the UCP and their rural base. And so to this, I can say, and I'm not surprised by this, that there aren't any systematic differences in terms of the kinds of like things that people say that they agree and disagree with across Albertans based on where they live right? And so if we're actually matching people in terms of like, the kinds of policy preferences that they have, and the kinds of outcomes that they want to see, um, we see about a quarter of folks are um, consistently left, Uh, we see about a quarter of folks are consistently right. And we see that there's a whole bunch of folks that are um, either like they identify in the right, but they want super expansive social programs, or they um, are kind of reluctant. So they're or they're like, economically conservative, but like also socially pretty progressive. Like they like GSAs. They don't want kids to be narked out in terms of their GSA sorts of things um, to their parents and things along those lines. Uh, The thing that's different in terms of rural Alberta compared to cities is that that partisanship does so much more heavy lifting out in the rural areas. Like the effect of partisanship on how people in 2018, anyway, the effect of partisanship and how people thought they were going to vote in rural areas was uh, astronomical. Like it was, it was pretty, I wouldn't say that it was deterministic, but the effect size was so big, so big that I was like, yeah, people might actually want things like, um, you know, Exactly like that guy in Lloyd was saying, like, I might want expansive student housing. Like, literally, expansive student housing, lower tuition fees, these are NDP policies. So they could, they could literally could say, I might actually like a lot of those NDP policies, but um, I'm a conservative. And so that's how I'm going to vote. I remember as a, uh, being in 2004 as BSE was a thing. And it was in the lead up to the 2004 federal election. And I was at a meeting in High River why was I at a meeting in High River? I was there with my folks. It was something related to something rural and agricultural with my folks. Uh, And I distinctly remember a farmer standing up at their microphone and saying to the conservative candidate, like, I don't like the stuff that you're advocating for. What I want is, and they listed stuff and it was just like, there are other parties that are offering substantively exactly what you want. They just happen to be like centrist or left-leaning. And so like, but this farmer repeatedly said, what I want is not what you're giving me. What I want is like, you're offering A, B, and C, and I want X, Y, and Z. And so he said, I'm going to vote for you on the understanding that you're going to like do the thing I want you to do, not the thing that you say that you're going to (laughs) do. And like he said it over and over and over again. And I was like, Huh. I mean, this explains a lot. And I remember, like, again, I can hear maybe somebody listening to this in rural Alberta and thinking she thinks that we're all stupid and it's no, I don't. And I remember when I wrote the CBC column saying partisanship just has a much stronger effect on vote choice in rural areas than what it or vote intention than what it does in the cities. And somebody was like, why do you think I'm stupid? And I was like, that's like me saying I think my parents are dumb. And that's not it. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying the, like, perceptual lens through which you view the political world is a lot more colored um than what it might be in like other parts of the province like so partisanship does work uh and if you think about it those communities are homogenous people know each other um like my every time i like, how should I put this? My folks are not conservative. This is perhaps not a surprise, even though we are very rural, but like my mom was an RN and my dad is an immigrant. And so like there's different socialization <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of happening in our rural household. And so every time an election comes around, uh, I end up chatting with my parents about some things. Uh, and I keep saying like, you should put up a big sign for like whatever party you want. That's not the like, the way that this district is going to go. And they're always like, no, no one will see it. And I was like, your neighbors will. Your neighbors will, like Mm -hmm. they need to know. Um, It's like, it's a sort of idea that like, there's a different and I think sometimes stronger sense of community in rural areas um, that leads to this idea of like, I can think about policies in a certain kind of way, somebody might say, but like we always end up voting this particular kind of way, right? I don't know. Uh, I remember being on the uh, student union executive down at the University of Lethbridge back in the Klein era. The reason why I ran, I remember this where Alberta was booming. It was the early aughts uh, and students had paid a mandatory fee for a, key academic building, that's the library. Um, And so I remember being there being like, oh, the library is open. And if you go down to the U of L, you can see that like commercialization is on every part of that building. Like there's the Roger Sugar study area. I remember that there's the Coca-Cola Rotunda. You can see that like there was a lot of corporate sponsorship that went into building that building and that got like labeled all over the place. And so I remember thinking, but students paid a mandatory fee and like students paid a mandatory fee for years, like their entire degree before they even broke ground on that building. Uh, And that is the, it was the biggest contribution to that academic building. And it's not acknowledged anywhere. And I remember what really got me in was watching Premier Klein open that building, even though the province contributed nothing to its construction, it was individual students, most of them, a bunch of them, fresh off the farm on student loans that were contributing the most to that particular building and the students worked in knowledge and the province didn't have to do anything and then they like he still gets to open the building anyway and then the university has to go hat in hand to ask for like in addition to the base operating grant to be able to pay the electrical bill to be able to like keep the lights on in the building and the province is like booming Literally, but they couldn't Mm -hmm. be bothered to like give any more money to like a regional university in Lethbridge that like serves the rural communities, like serves their base, like particularly well um, because it's a great institution. Uh, I'm a proud alum, I can totally tell, but still. Uh, And then, and then we got another tuition fee increase and the student representatives voted in favor of it saying, well, the university needs the money and it's good for the institution. And so because the institution needs it, that's why we're voting in favor of it. And I, I I remember like I got elected and I don't think I gave a very persuasive presentation to the board, I know I didn't. It was probably one of the worst presentations I've ever given in my entire life. Cause I didn't know, like now I know exactly what I would say, it was just like, stop asking us. Like I know we don't have the votes to be able to persuade you, like any board of governors to like not automatically go for a tuition fee increase, but like at least ask the provincial government instead of asking like a bunch of 18 year olds fresh Mm -hmm. off the farm to like, you know, do their duty again for the good of the institution because like we have paid a lot, we've paid a lot. The other thing which is that we wanted like a student (laughs) acknowledgement on the library being like, could you acknowledge students as like the biggest contributors? And they were like, no. Um, And I also remember we floated the idea of like, could you name it after something Blackfoot then? And they were like, no. It was the early thought. and like this is the sort of thing where it's just like I thought I had political skills as like a third year undergraduate political scientist, and I like political science student rather. And the answer is I did not. Like you learn what you don't know when you're in the students' union. Oh my anyway.
1: god, you know, I, I, yeah. I yeah, no, I feel I feel the exact same way uh, when yeah. I when I was involved in student politics. I, I would be a much more effective student leader if I were uh, knew what I knew today, and I was I were was uh, you know many years younger than I am right right now.
2: Yeah, um, well, and, but I I remember when it was when the Prentice budget came out in 2015, I was teaching an Intro to Canadian Politics class and I was like, what do you think of them asking you to pay more, but mm-hmm. not like any large corporation that's made money like gangbusters. Like what do you think? And they're like, well, like we're in a bad position and like everybody's going to have to help out and like you can see this kind of collectivist like good nature coming out and I was like well i'm mad on your behalf like why like it would be one thing if we were all being asked to like shoulder the burden here but they are disproportionately asking you as young people to take on debt to borrow against future earnings so that they can protect folks who already like did make a lot of money and like will still continue to make a lot of money like you explain to me why that's fair because yeah, we, we've been to that rodeo before and like it's a shitty rodeo i'm
1: sorry yeah, i mean one of the yeah. things the, the kind of common things common themes of alberta politics that i've yeah. seen you know over the over the many years is you know regardless of how the economy is actually doing regardless of how how much money people are making and how much how much dough these you know some of these large corporations are rolling in economic times are always tough in alberta even mm-hmm. when the province is running, running massive budgets. But I don't want to I don't want to get, get to get too far into that. I, but I but I really I now I really want to invite you back to talk about post-secondary. <laughs> and yeah. and I promise you in twenty in twenty twenty one, when we come back after the break, at some point, we are going to have an episode about post-secondary education. And and if you're available, we would love to have you back because um, obviously you're a you're a fountain of knowledge and and you have great stories about uh, about you know, not only experience in academia, but experiences mm-hmm. as as a student leader. So. Thank you very and also much. Being
2: like fresh off the farm and going yeah, to an Alberta University, totally, right? like, totally, yeah,
1: totally. Yeah. Thank you very much
2: for joining us today. This was, Thank this you was, for having me. This has been delightful and like long. We talk. We have <laughs> many things to say. Many things to well, say. There, yeah.
1: there, there, there's, there's no shortage of stuff to talk about. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you, uh, you helped, you know, contribute and helped us. Uh, you know break down and take a look at some of the some of the most important stuff that's happening in Alberta and help us understand what's going on uh what, what might be going on in the mind of Jason Kenney and the mind of Tyler Shandro and and the uh, the uh, the political center at the, at the legislature. So thank you very much for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. Is is there any place that people can find you online if they, if they're looking for you? Can they follow you on Twitter or can they follow yeah, you?
2: Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh with like mostly like I wish I posted more like actual peer reviewed research on my Twitter, but I do sometimes. So, okay. uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, and I also have like, if people Google me and the university of Calgary, they'll find my faculty page, which okay. it has some of my research available on it too. And we'll post a link. Uh, so our, so our, so yeah. our listeners can, uh, can
1: take a, take a look at that. Excellent. So, thank you yeah. very much, Melanie. So that, that is it for this episode. Thanks for listening to every thanks everybody for listening and and thanks again to our producer Adam Rosenhart for making this podcast sound so great. Thanks, Adam. The Dave Berta podcast is a proud member of the Alberta podcast network locally grown community supported send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page or you can email us at podcast at Dave Berta uh, You can leave. If you like the episode, please feel free to leave a review or a rating where you listen, or share it with your friends and family. And stay tuned to DaveBerta.ca over the next week or so because we are going to launch the annual Best of Alberta Politics survey. I think the fifth annual Best of Alberta Politics survey. So we will be looking for your submissions uh, for who the best MLA is, who the best opposition MLA is, who the best cabinet minister is, who the I think the up in, best up and coming MLA to watch is, and maybe another. Category or two that we might come up with to throw it in there just for some fun. So thank you very much Please stay safe. Stay home if you can wear a mask if you go outside wash your hands Please don't touch your face. Um, And we will get through this all together Thank you for listening